And did you know that all of these Sabbaths are referred to as a shadow of good things to come? And without doubt, the substance is far more profound and important than the shadow. Find out what this mystery is all about on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Last week's episode was titled, Which is Right? Saturday or Sunday Worship or Something Different? This week's title is Sabbath, a shadow of good things to come. And the word shadow means a foreshadowing, something symbolic and prophetic of something even better. And I believe this is going to put the cap on everything we said last week. It's going to bring it to completion and seal it up for you. So let's go forward with it, starting by going back to Exodus chapter 20. Let's review some things. That's the chapter that relates what God said from Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment in most Protestant Bibles, the third commandment in the Catholic Bible says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And then God gave the explanation. He said, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, or he made it holy. He sanctified it. He set it apart as a sacred day for his people. Now, my first knee-jerk reaction to that statement that was spoken from Mount Sinai translated all the way up into our generation, is this. Who sets the standard on what is holy? If God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that's going to mean a lot of different things for different people. One person may be a very strict and conservative believer that says you should only pray and read the Bible on the Sabbath day and do those things that are religious in nature and spiritual in nature. And someone else might say, that's my day to watch football. I'm just going to lay out on the couch. And to him, that's holy, I suppose, to just live a relaxed kind of day to experience enjoyable things. So again, there's no biblical standard determining what is holy in the sight of heaven or what fits underneath that heading. And so it's altogether subjective, meaning it's personally determined. What about Paul's words in Romans chapter 14? Listen to this. He said, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. 
He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Again, he's talking about a subjective decision. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike, and so Paul is saying this is a determination each person in a relationship with God must determine for themselves personally in their submission to Jesus' lordship in their lives. So maybe it's wrong for us to set down an absolute rule for everyone because Paul leaves it open-ended. I have friends, I have very dear friends, I have friends in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that I have a long-term friendship with who believe very passionately that the Saturday Sabbath must be acknowledged. And I have friends that are just as passionate about gathering for worship on Sundays. And I, I think it's wonderful that both of them are doing that worshipfully and lovingly toward God. They're both doing it as an act of adoration. So maybe they differ a little bit in their understanding or their interpretation, but ultimately their hearts are inclined upward. And isn't that what matters most? I do want to say this, though. If strict Sabbath-keeping was an important righteousness-determining standard in the New Covenant, Paul never would have said anything like what he said in Romans chapter 14. Because Paul was a champion of righteousness by faith. And I, I believe he really felt passionately that anything that took away from that took away from the glory of what Jesus accomplished. And so, well, let me give you an example. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, he said, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. So at one point, Paul was a passionate Sabbath keeper on Saturday. But he said in the next line, verse 7 of Philippians 3, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Very peculiar statement. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, the Messiah, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The King James Version says, dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Now listen closely. Be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. My faith goes upward to him, righteousness comes downward from him into my life as a gift. Blessed are those who hunger after righteousness, they shall be filled, filled with God's very own righteousness to the point where we become the righteousness 
of God in Christ. You can't reach a higher place than that. And to think that any ceremonial type of thing could make you even more righteous in the sight of heaven robs the cross of its glory, robs the open tomb of its glory. And yet many would say it's not a way of determining righteousness, but a way of responding in obedience and love to God's commandments. I understand that. But still, Paul made it very clear, at least on his part, where he stood on those matters. Now, the divine decree to keep the Sabbath in the Old Testament is repeated elsewhere in Scripture besides Exodus 20. And one primary place I want to take you to is Exodus 31, verse 13. Listen, speak also to the children of Israel, God said to Moses, and tell them, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. And God put that in the plural this time. Surely my Sabbaths, S-A-B-B-A-T-H-S, you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so the very fact that they kept certain Sabbaths or days in which they did not involve themselves in any customary work. These were not work days. These were days set aside to contemplate the things of God, to worship God. And God said it's going to be a sign to the heathen, the pagans, the Gentiles around them, that there's something special about that nation. It's a covenantal sign that they gather to worship on a specific day because they've been directed to do so. And it's a sign of their connection with heaven and the God of heaven. That's powerful. And God said, surely my Sabbaths, plural, you shall keep. What was he talking about? I thought there was just one Sabbath, and that's the seventh day of the week, which is incidentally Saturday. Well, actually, there's other days that are referred to in Scripture in the Old Testament as Sabbaths, including the first and last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the first and the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are five of the seven feasts of the Lord that the children of Israel were called upon to celebrate. And all the feasts normally were a celebration, a memorial, if you will, of things God had done in the past. But every single one of them is prophetic also of something God would yet do in the future. And so they were foreshadowings foreshadowings. They were Sabbaths, days of rest, days set aside to worship God. The writer of Hebrews, which I believe to be Paul, because there's a lot of Pauline language in the epistle to the Hebrews, contains a very powerful verse in relation to this subject. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. 
Now, he was making a, a very inclusive statement when he said the law. He's referring to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah, the law. And they contained a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of what was yet to come. So you can't see the crucifixion of the Son of God in the Torah. You can't see the resurrection of the Son of God in the Torah. You can't see a gathering of disciples in the upper room being baptized in the Holy Spirit in the Torah, but you see the foreshadowings of that in very beautiful, poetical, symbolic ways. See, the future dominated God's mind, and in a genius kind of way, he instituted certain ceremonial rituals for them that were celebrations of what he did in the past, but containing all kinds of details, really amazing details, of things he's going to do in the future, a shadow of good things to come. And that included the priesthood of the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the different sacrifices were a foreshadowing of the crucified Messiah to come. The tabernacle itself, the outer court, holy place, holy of holies, the furniture in the tabernacle, all of that was a foreshadowing of something much better, much higher, much more wonderful yet to come. And the Sabbath, as well as the other 612 commandments or however many on top of the Sabbath worship, there were the 613 total in the Torah. And it was an intricately designed system that was a composite prophecy. Can you see it that way? It was a composite prophecy, a forecast of something phenomenal, grand, and glorious that was coming down the road. Too often we get stuck in the prophetic part and forget that the prophecy fulfilled was on a much, much higher level. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 reiterates this kind of thought. Once again, Paul, this champion of revelation, said, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. He put it in the plural which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. In other words, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the priesthood, the tabernacle. It's not about the feast days. It's not about the sacrificial system. It's about Jesus. It all comes together in this wonderful person who was God manifested in the flesh. The most incredible thing God's ever done in your life is to open your eyes to the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a little bit of elaboration on that point so that it gets driven home really good. All the Sabbaths, were foreshadowings. They were a shadow of good things to come. Well, what is a shadow? You have types and shadows in the Bible. You have a type, which is a representative person or happening that refers to the anti-type, the anti-type. 
which is the fulfillment of it. And the shadow precedes the substance. Uh, because the shadow is just kind of a, a cloudy image of something very solid and substantive, which is yet to come. And what's yet to come is more important than the shadow that kind of leads you that direction. Let me give you a couple of real easy to understand examples. If you had a beautiful elm tree in your backyard, or maybe a beautiful oak tree in your backyard, and you wanted to show a neighbor how this tree that you'd planted as a sapling had grown into this mighty oak, then would you take that person into the backyard and point to the shadow and say, look at how amazing the outline of the trunk is. Oh, you can see it in the shadow cast on the ground. And oh, yes, it's elongated. It's, it's stretched out. It's a little bit bigger, really, than the tree. But, uh, and it's stretched out for a longer period. But uh, you kind of get an idea of what the tree looks like if you look at the at the extended shadow going out from this long strip. Of course you wouldn't do that. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. I'm being absurd. I'm being ridiculous because I want to drive the point home. If you wanted to show your neighbor the tree, you'd point to the tree. And the shadow is also almost meaningless at that point and wouldn't get any attention unless it was a hot day and you wanted to step in the shadow for a little relief. So the substance is what's most important. And I could give you a lot of other examples. What if you took someone to New York City and you wanted them to see the Empire State Building? Would you get down on that street and then point to the long shadow cast by the sun of this tall building that was once the tallest building in the world? Or would you point the person to the building itself and say, tilt your head up. You got to look way up to see the top. Well, of course, they would tilt their head up to see the substance of what you're talking about, not the shadow. And I think we all need to tilt our hearts upward to see something more grand than the religious rules we cling to that we think are so important when it's really all about Jesus in a much broader, wider, deeper way than sometimes we realize. Now, since I brought forth the point that certain feast days, five of the seven feasts of the Lord are referred to as Sabbath days in Scripture, I want to show you how those Sabbaths foreshadowed something much greater. First, I'm going to start off with Pesach or Passover. That was not referred to as a Sabbath day in Scripture, but I want you to see the symbolism. That's the first feast that I should touch on because uh, God said the, the month in which Passover came would be the beginning of months for them because it represents what brings forth a brand new beginning in all of our lives. Of course, the Passover feast when it was celebrated on a yearly basis, they would eat lamb. They would uh, remember as a memorial how the night of the Passover, the destroyer went through the land of Egypt. There was not a, an Egyptian household where there was not one dead. 
But in the Israeli households, they were safe because God had directed them to put lamb blood on the upper doorposts and the two side posts. Amazingly, over a million men performed the greatest mass prophecy that has ever been given. They took hyssop, dipped it in lamb's blood, and made the sign of the cross, not knowing that they were prophesying of a much greater lamb, not an animal from the fold, but a son from heaven that would offer himself up on a cross. Strangely, the same day Passover would be celebrated so that the fulfillment and the shadow coincided. Isn't God amazing? (laughs) Isn't God amazing? And the Bible even verifies this because 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says that Christ, our Passover, is offered up for us. Now, in the Old Testament, Passover had to be celebrated every year, a reminder of what God had done in Egypt. But Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross every year. It was done once for all. And the blood that he provided flows through me constantly. From the day, from the moment I said, Jesus, come into my heart, I surrender my life to you that blood began sanctifying me and cleansing me. Now, the day after Passover was the first day of unleavened bread, and it was referred to as a Shabbat, a a day of rest, a Sabbath. It's called Hag Hamasot, and it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day feast. The last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also a Sabbath. And for Seven days they were to eat unleavened bread, and it was a reminder of their quick exit from Egypt. Well, they didn't have time to put uh, leaven in their dough and raise the bread before they baked it, so they took unleavened bread with them and escaped from Egypt, right? So that's wonderful. Yes, that's a tremendous thing God did in the past, but you didn't escape from Egypt. You didn't escape from the dictatorial rule of Pharaoh. You escaped from the realm of darkness and the dictatorial rule of Satan. And when you came out by the blood of a lamb and you exited the bondage of your past, the enslavement to sin that you used to suffer, then God expects you to fulfill in your life what unleavened bread represented. What does it represent? It was a shadow of something much more important, much more profound, and much better that was yet to come. Because in Scripture, leaven is a symbol of quite a few things that are all negative, all evil, all bad, all things that you don't want in your life. Because leaven is a fungus similar to yeast that causes semi-fermentation in dough. In other words, it starts rotting, and it releases gases that makes the dough puff up bigger than it really is. That makes you want to go out and have a sandwich made with bread, doesn't it? Just thinking uh, that that dough was semi-rotten. But anyway, because of the way it spreads quickly and contaminates what it's a part of quickly and causes rottenness quickly, it became a symbol for religious hypocrisy. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
It became a symbol of unbelief in the supernatural because Jesus told his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. And they denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of spirits. They were the intellectuals and the elite and tended to be the wealthier people in Israel. And they dismissed a lot of supernatural elements from God's word. And that was leaven-like in its influence. And Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. He also told them to beware of the leaven of Herod, who was a cruel, evil ruler who killed one of his wives and, and, and some of his children in order to maintain his position and yet claimed to be an heir of the blessing of Abraham because he was uh, an Edomite. So to beware of the leaven of Herod is to beware of total moral depravity and yet claim to be religious. And then in the Corinthian church, there was incest going on, and Paul rebuked them for not dealing with it. And he said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and that was a real perverted kind of lust that had taken over one family unit in the church. And Paul was saying, it'll spread to other families if you don't deal with it. So leaven is a symbol of all of these things and much more, anything corruptive in its influence. And for seven days after Passover, Jewish people still will be certain to eat unleavened bread prior to Passover. They'll clean out their cabinets and make sure there's no leaven or yeast anywhere as a kind of symbolic ritual. And yet cleaning your kitchen cabinets cannot compare to a life of holiness. See, the shadow is getting the leaven out and not putting it in your dough. The substance is a life free from leaven-like evil, which is far more profound, far more profound. The Feast of Pentecost was another feast referred to as a Sabbath in uh, Leviticus 23 and other places in Scripture. These Sabbath feasts are referred to, but primarily Leviticus 23 and it's called Shavuot, and it happened 50 days after the day after the Sabbath uh, when Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread take place. It's called the Feast of Weeks. You have seven weeks from the day after the Sabbath uh, during that holy week of Unleavened Bread, and you come to Pentecost. You come to Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50 because it was 50 days. 50 is a number of jubilee and a number that represents freedom and liberty. And what happened in the past that made the Jewish people want to celebrate Pentecost every year? Because 50 days out of Egypt, they met God at Mount Sinai. And God spoke out of the mountain and gave the Ten Commandments. And they heard the audible voice of the Almighty. And they received tablets of stone that were written on with the handwriting of God. How amazing is that? And that is amazing. But something more amazing happened when Pentecost was fulfilled. And again, the feast and its fulfillment happened simultaneously in the upper room. Some say there were 120. We don't really know for sure there were 120. We know that amount were in the upper room or gathered together when 
they voted on who should take Judas's place, but we're not really told if that's the same number that were there when the Holy Spirit visited like a Russian mighty wind when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Cloven tongues of fire appeared over each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in tongues and began preaching in languages like Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia. They all heard the gospel in their own language. God didn't intercept Hebrew words and turn them into those other languages. They were actually speaking in known languages and preaching the gospel, even though what they said was not known to them. So which is greater? I want you to compare the two. Is the fact that God consumed a mountain in holy fire named Sinai and spoke out of that mountain the Ten Commandments? Is that greater? Or when that same fire fell on the disciples in the upper room and God spoke out of his people? And not only that, he wrote the law on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, but he wrote the law in their hearts on the day of Pentecost when they were born again. And the new covenant came into being. And the first sign of the new covenant God gave in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, was that he would write his law in our hearts. That's infinitely more important than writing his law in stone. So the shadow is wonderful. The substance is far more wonderful. Next, the Feast of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month, when a hundred trumpets are blasted in the synagogues throughout the world. What does that represent? Rosh Hashanah is, uh, well, that those Hebrew words mean the head of the year. And I believe it prophetically refers to several things. And incidentally, the hundredth blast of the trumpet is held much longer and I guess somewhat louder as a result, longer and louder than the 99 preceding it because it represents something very intense. I believe the Feast of Trumpets represents, number one, the trumpet judgments of the last days. And there's seven trumpets in the last days uh, spoken of in the book of Revelation. And the last trumpet sounds and the voice in the book of Revelation said, the kingdoms of this Lord are become the kingdoms of our, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign on the earth. So that's the completion, the finality, the end of it all. And that's what the Feast of Trumpets represents. It's a Shabbat. It's a Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. They were to do no ordinary work on that day. And then what does that last hundredth trumpet blast represent? Well, let me give you a few hints. What about Matthew 24, 31? He shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Yeah, the Feast of Trumpets certainly is the shadow, 
but the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead and the entrance of the kingdom of God into this world, that's the substance. I'm asking you, which is more important? Which is more important? Then other days are also Sabbath days. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the 10th day of the seventh month, is called the Sabbath of Sabbaths because in Leviticus 23, 32, it's referred to as a Sabbath of solemn rest, and that's Shabbat, Shabbaton. So it's like a double Sabbath. It's the Sabbath of all Sabbaths because that was the day in which the national sin debt of Israel was lifted, and there's a lot of symbolism there that I, I won't go into. The Feast of Tabernacles comes next, and that's the feast called Sukkot, which is uh, the next feast that is seven days long, uh, and it comes five days after the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles and the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles are both days of rest. They're Sabbaths. And that's why a lot of people believe that Jesus was born on the first day of Tabernacles, because that's what it represents. It represents God tabernacling in this world. It was looking back to the time when he tabernacled among them in the wilderness in the tabernacle of Moses, looking forward to the time when the Messiah would be the tabernacle of God walking on the earth, and looking even further down the road to the time when the Lord will walk among us once again. Tabernacles. And the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is called Simchatorah which means the rejoicing of the law. That's when Jews finish reading the Torah and they roll the scrolls back to the beginning. It's a day of rest. It's a Sabbath. What does it represent? It represents the completion of the plan of God. When God rolls everything back to the beginning and he restores us to Eden paradise, it's beauty, it's glory, it's wonder, it's oneness with God, it's purity, hallelujah, where this world will become what God intended it to be to begin with. So which is most important, which is most profound, which is most powerful? Simchatorah, which is a Sabbath day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Is that the most powerful thing? That's the shadow. And it's wonderful that they finish reading the Torah on that day. It's wonderful that they're dancing with the Torah in the streets of Jerusalem on that day and all around the world. However, it's going to be more wonderful when God brings his complete plan of redemption to finality and God dwells among us once again. And it's all fulfilled and it's all completed. So can you see how the Sabbath, the seventh day, is indicative of something much more profound. Yes, it's important to rest the seventh day of the week and to observe worshipfulness toward God, or the first day of the week. The early church met on the first day of the week. Does it really matter if it's Saturday or Sunday? I personally believe it doesn't matter. You can worship on Saturday and be corrupt inside. You can worship on Sunday and be corrupt inside. So it's not the day, it's the attitude that means the most. And and yes, it's important to have a day because the Bible said, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. So that's important. But what it represents, the shadow represents the substance 
of not just one day a week, but having rest in God continuously. And that happens right here in this life. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. That's a divine rest that takes up its abode within you. But it also speaks of the rest that awaits us all in the heavenly state. No strife, no warfare, no battles of the mind, no attacks of the enemy, no satanic uh, inventions and deceptions trying to ensnare us, but in a place of rest. No wonder the Bible said, his rest shall be glorious. The shadow of the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, or the ultimate goal that it represents, freedom from all strife in the heavenly state, which is more profound? Draw your own conclusions. I think you'll agree with me when you think about it and pray about it. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.